Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have gathered us together this morning, gathered us together in your presence that we might learn from you, that we might know about you, that we might walk with you. And so, Lord, as we come before your word, we ask that you would once more give us hearts and minds to receive your message. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there is a conversation uh, that is gaining a fever pitch within our culture these days. We hear it when we have these discussions around things like meditation and mindfulness. I think that this conversation is part of what explains the ongoing popularity of the Seinfeld Serenity Now gif. This conversation is a conversation about where do we find balance, peace, and serenity? Where do we find a sense of being centered in a hectic and frantic world? You see, our world is accelerating faster than most of us can keep up with. Our technology advances at a rate that is quicker than most people can consume, much less learn how to use. Our news now comes to us in a 24-hour news cycle. We are able to be reached at all times by not just family and friends, but also by work because of the smartphones that we carry around in our pockets. We are hyper-connected, moving at hypersonic speed. And I think part of the reason why we are having these conversations, why people are starting to talk about what it means to find balance or to be centered, why people are so um, connect, uh, hooked into this mindfulness movement is because of the fact that we desperately long for a sense of stability in a rapidly changing world. We want to know, how is it that I can go about my day with a sense of not simply peace, but a sense of confidence? Where do I turn in order to have wisdom so that I may make sense of the innumerable choices that I am bombarded with each and every single day? I think it's part of the reason why we always are talking about what it means to be centered. And that's really what I want us to be talking about this morning as we launch into a new series in the book of Colossians. What does it really mean to be centered? And how do we find that center? As I was uh, reading through psychology today, Dr. Diana Rabb talks about uh, the popularity of this discussion around centeredness. And this is what she says. She says, being centered means that you have a reference point or a place to come back to when life's challenges and emotions push you off balance. The center is the place that you have to get back to. And I think as we read that, most of us long for that. We want to know, how can I be a centered person in a rapidly changing world? When all the stresses and anxieties seem to be bearing down, what can I return back to in order to have a foundation from not which simply to, to respond, but a place from which I might live? But the challenge in all of this is the question, if being centered is the goal, you first need to know where the center is. How do we find that center? Where do we turn? To what do we look toward? Many people would say, well, I turn inward. I just get centered in myself. I take a deep breath. I recite serenity now or something like that, and the world gets better. But I think that's part of the reason that whole Seinfeld episode is so darn funny. Because it works for about 30 seconds, and then the characters encounter other people. They walk out their front door, and suddenly... Serenity now becomes serenity now! 
We can't turn inward, so where do we turn? Where is the center? That's why I think studying the book of Colossians of all places is an interesting place to begin, but an appropriate one. Many people would say, well, what is the Bible? Most of it, you know, written by the end of the first century. What does that have to say to 21st century problems? How can you possibly speak about centeredness from a book that old? But when you look at the book of Colossians, what you find is something that is incredibly relevant for today. See, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Colossians to a church that he had actually never met before. The church in Colossae was planted by someone other than Paul. You see, Paul was uh, preaching and teaching in the city of Ephesus. He actually ministered there for about three years, and it was during that time that a man from Colossae named Epaphras came and heard Paul's message. He heard the good news about Jesus Christ, he became a Christian, and then he went 100 miles east back to his hometown where he started a church. And now in about 60 AD, he is visiting Paul while Paul is in prison in Rome, and he says, you know, Paul, I could really use your help because our church is being bombarded by all these various cultural pressures. What he was talking about is he was talking about the circumstances that that church found itself in the city of Colossae. Colossae was not um, a major city in the ancient world, at least not when you consider the whole of the Roman Empire. It certainly didn't stack up to places like um, Ephesus or Corinth or Rome, but it was a major center of trade and business for the region. Uh, in Asia Minor, it was a diverse and eclectic city. Many people would come there to, um, to trade in its markets. And as a result, it was representative of the broader Roman world. You had people from many different cultural and religious backgrounds there. You had different philosophers coming and teaching there. It was actually a very, very eclectic, diverse, and metropolitan place. It was a place that was pretty fast-paced. It was a place where lots of people were rubbing shoulders where they were being bombarded by different kinds of thoughts and philosophies and ideas. In many ways, it's very similar to, well, our circumstances here in 21st century America. What I find so incredible about the ancient world is, especially as I look at the Roman Empire and the context in which many of the New Testament writers were preaching and writing and working, and what we find is that there are more similarities than differences between then and now. And so Epaphras comes to Paul and he says, Apostle Paul, I need your help because I feel like we're losing our center. We live in this rapidly changing city, this rapidly changing culture, this rapidly changing world where we feel like the ground beneath our feet is shaking and we want to know where do we look? Uh, how, to, to what do we turn? How can we be centered people? And Paul writes this letter. And one of the things that Paul says to them after an initial greeting and thanksgiving for the church in Colossae is he launches into one of the few poems that we have in the New Testament. This is what he says. He says, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in every, uh, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood 
of his cross. You see, to Epaphras' question, where do we look in our rapidly changing world? Where can we find our center? Paul's answer is, he says, well, you need to look to Jesus. Jesus is the center. Now, you might look at me and you might say, well, of course you're going to say that. You're a Christian. Of course a Christian would look to Jesus as the center, but we live in a diverse and rapidly changing world. Well, there are countless different religious options out there. And so I'm glad that you found your center in Jesus, but really isn't this about us all finding our own center? I mean, we have all these different options to pick from. Can't we just pick one of the other world's religions? I mean, surely they all kind of lead to the same place. Surely they'll all get us back to center, right? I think this is part of the reason why there's so much confusion uh, confusion about Jesus these days, even among Christians. We tend to think of Jesus as kind of like a first century radical speaking truth to power, or we think of him as just some, some other sort of spiritual guide, maybe a representation of the divine, or maybe he's just some sort of great moral teacher. And the reason why I think we say things like this is because we're trying to fit Jesus into this kind of diverse world that we live in. How do we make Jesus, on the one hand, a center that you could maybe find some peace in, but alongside many other different kinds of centers? And the reason we say this is because we want to be more inclusive, and and I get it, I understand that. And so we, we reason, well, if there are all these different religions, aren't they all just equally valid paths to the same place? I mean, while religions might look superficially different, fundamentally they're all the same, right? But the reality is, is if you actually stop and take a closer look, what you find is that that quite simply is not true. And here's why I say that. I used to believe that religions were superficially different but fundamentally the same. Growing up, not having really been raised in church, I looked at a lot of different religions and I thought they all seem, you know, relatively pretty good. Until a a friend of mine kind of started to to push me on the subject and saying, well, do you know a whole lot about them? I said, well, no. And he's like, well, maybe you should study them. So I took him up on that offer. I actually went and got an undergraduate degree in world religions from the University of Illinois. I was so intent that I had to figure this out. And one of the things that I found is that rather than the world's religions being superficially different but fundamentally the same, I found it was actually the other way around. That the world's religions are superficially the same, but fundamentally different. Superficially the same, but fundamentally different. Here's what I mean by that. You look at Hinduism, for example. Hinduism says that everything that we see, everything that exists, is an illusion. And that the goal of human life is to look through that illusion and realize that we're all essentially a part of the one divine spirit, Brahman. And so we need to uh, divest ourselves of our attachments to all these illusions and just realize our oneness. But you look at Buddhism, and Buddhism actually rejects that. The Buddha rejected that entire idea. He said, well, not is all of this an illusion. There is no fundamental divine reality. There is no center. We are constantly in a state of change and flux. And it's until you get used to that constant state of change that you're never going to be at peace. You're never going to be happy. And so you just need to get rid of your desires, because it's from your desires that suffering comes. And you just need to be annihilated, basically. You need to fade away into nothingness. That's the only way you're going to find peace. You look at Islam. Islam says, well, no, there is actually a personal God, a God who initially created everything. And he is uh, so high above us, so holy and so untouchable that the best relationship we can hope to have from him is to listen to his commands and to his laws. 
to follow the five pillars and to do as our religion's name implies, to submit to his rule and to his reign. But then you get to Christianity, and Christianity says, well, not only is there a personal creator God, but you can never really live up to his holy standards. None of us is perfect, but that God loves us, and he actually became a human being and walked among us. An idea that is actually offensive, not only to Muslims, but to Jews. These religions, while superficially the same, are fundamentally different in what they say about divine reality. In where they say you can find the center. In terms of how we're supposed to live as human beings and what the ultimate goal of our lives is. And honestly, if it's simply a matter of me looking at these multitudinous options and trying to figure it out, not only is it overwhelming, it's discouraging. Because how can I know which one is true? They all teach something fundamentally different. How can I possibly find a center in this marketplace of ideas that point in a million different directions? Which is why Paul says this is why Jesus is such good news. Because what he says is he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, what Paul says here is he says, look, if you want to know the center, I have good news for you. It's not about you finding the center, it's about the center finding you. He says that the invisible God that we're all groping around in the dark trying to find made himself known. He made himself known actually in a way that we can understand by becoming one of us. God left his throne in heaven, became a human being, walked with us, talked with us, ate with us, served alongside us, ultimately died for us, and rose again to new life. See, what Paul is saying is he's saying if you've ever been searching for the center and wondering where to turn, you don't need to wonder any longer because God has already made himself known in time and in space and in human history. He's removed the guesswork and the guessing game. And this is good news because what this tells us is that this message is for everybody. You don't have to be a super smart philosopher who suddenly pierces through the veil of the mysteries and figures it out on your own. You don't need to be a morally perfect person who's never done anything wrong in your life. What it's saying is God has bridged the gap and become one of us, entered into relationship with us so that we might know him. And he says, and this is good news if you're searching for the center because if you know Jesus, you understand the very purpose of life. A couple years ago, I actually heard a preacher talk, uh, give this illustration, talking about the importance of seeing Jesus as the center. It was a pretty simple illustration. He, he took off his watch, and he said, what if I were to ask you to look at this watch and to tell me, is this a good watch? He said, well, the only way you can answer whether or not this is a good watch is if you can answer a prior question. Prior question is, well, what is a watch for? Because if a watch is for driving nails into wood, this is not a very good watch. Because I would start pounding on that nail, and about three pounds in, this watch is toast. The nail is probably through the watch, but it's not in the wood. But if a watch is supposed to tell time, 
yeah, this is a pretty good watch. Not only does it tell me the time accurately, it tells me the date. It can give me my heart rate, GPS tracking position, an altimeter. There's a compass on it. I can get my text messages. Never mind. Ignore the watch. Forget the watch for a second. Here's the point. The only way you're going to know whether your life has meaning or purpose, whether your life is good, whether your life is centered, is if you can ask the prior question, what is this life for? And the only way that you're going to be able to answer that question is to go to the one who designed it, who can tell you what life is all about. And what Paul is saying here when he says that all things are made through Jesus is he's saying Jesus is the one who knows how life works. He is the one who designed it all. And if you are wondering about where to find your center and what your direction and purpose in life should be, then he is the one that you need to go to because he alone can answer that question. He made himself known so that you might understand not only who God is, but who you are in relationship to him. And what's even more amazing is what Paul then says next. He says, because you want to know who we are in relation to him? We are his beloved and forgiven children. Listen to this. He says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the good news that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. See, what he's saying is, he's saying, God loves you as you are. See, I think behind our quests for the center, our quests for purpose, is this deeper question of, am I known and am I loved? Do I have purpose and meaning? Does my life matter? We search for the center because what we really want is we want an answer to those deeper questions. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, yes, you are needed and known. You are loved and your life has purpose. And the way you can know is look at what your God has done for you. That even when you were running away from him, even when you turned your back on him, he entered into our world to rescue you. He left the comforts of his throne in heaven to become one of us, to forgive us and to give us the gift of new life. And if you've ever doubted that, he's provided you with evidence. By dying on a cross for you, that's how far his love is willing to take him. But more than that, for, by rising again to new life. I would challenge you to find me one other person in all of human history who rose again from the dead. Jesus Christ is the only one who did it. And it's not just a story that we tell that once upon a time, long, long time ago, some guy somewhere came back to life. No, it's a story that's grounded in human history. In 33 AD, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, a man named Jesus from Nazareth was uh, put on trial. He was falsely accused and executed by the Roman government on a hill outside Jerusalem. He was buried near that hill, and three days later, he rose again from the dead, and countless witnesses saw him. If you want to know that we base our faith on something that is truly solid, you need only look at the evidence. God came, lived, died, and rose again. So that we can not only have hope, but so that we can be centered people in a rapidly changing and often confusing and terrifying world. 
But more than that, he, did, he assures us that we have the gift of eternal life. That not only are our identity and love secure in him, but our purpose and our very lives are secure in his hands. What I love about this message from Paul is he's saying, if you want to be a centered person, you need only look to Jesus. God who makes himself known. God who provides everything for you. Go back to that uh, quote earlier in the message from uh, Dr. Rabb. Being centered means that you have a reference point or place to come back to when life's challenges and emotions push you off balance. The center is the place you know you have to get back to. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying the center is the one who has already come for you. Not someone you have to find. Not someone you have to work to impress. But someone who loves you unconditionally. That pursued you into this world so that you can have hope and peace and joy and life. What Paul is saying is there's no better center than Christ. So we can sing along with the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the center that we say, Amen.